It's good to see all of you. Uh, it's good to see some people who I haven't seen in a while. Uh, welcome. If you're new or visiting, we also want to welcome you. Uh, we're glad you're here. Hopefully you can stick around. We can get to know you a little bit after the service. Um, we we got started a little bit late today, and that's not uh, anyone's fault except for mine, I guess. I'm just a late guy. Um, but James is back today, so uh, good news. I think things will get back to normal real quick. Um, but we have a lot to cover today. We're continuing our sermon series through the summer called Stories That Teach. We're looking at uh, some of the parables of Jesus from the book of Luke. And we're going to do seven. That's our plan. Maybe we'll do eight. We are just talking about it this week. Maybe we'll add on one more. There's so many parables in Luke that are unique to Luke. Uh, we might try to stretch that out. But today we're in Luke 13. We're looking at the third, I believe, that we've looked at so far. Luke 13. Uh, we'll start at verse 1, and we'll go to verse 9. So let me read the text, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get into it, okay? Luke 13, verse 9, or verse 1 through 9, excuse me. Luke 13, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Let's pray and then we'll get into it. Father, we know, God, that your word speaks truth. We know that your word speaks life. But we also know, Father, that your word does speak the truth of our sinfulness and our need for punishment because of that. Your word doesn't only speak life, but it also reveals the reason why we deserve death. And that's not an easy thing to hear. Father, it's not an easy lesson that this parable has for us. So God, I pray that you would give us ears to hear I pray that you would open our eyes to see. I pray, God, that we would have open hearts to receive what your word has for us. And I pray, God, that we would respond and be changed. Because I know that at the end of this, God, even though this passage has a lot of difficult things for us to hear, God, your word does give life. So I pray, God, that we would turn and receive the life that can only be found in Christ today. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever felt the urgency of the clock ticking down? You know, a few times I felt this. I, I'm not really an urgent person by nature, um, but I remember one time I was playing basketball in this church basketball league, and I'll probably mind this experience for future sermon illustrations because church basketball is crazy. But this one time we were playing against this team that we were pretty evenly matched with. I was probably in my early 20s, um, and because we were evenly matched, it was very competitive. 
Uh, not in a bad way, per se, but the score was really close, okay, throughout the entire game. And at the end of the game, there were only a few seconds left, and we were tied. So we're desperately playing as hard as we can. We elevate our effort to 100%, right? We're playing defense as hard as we can, trying to stop them from scoring so they don't win, and they're doing the same to us. We're trying to score, and unfortunately, we're not NBA players, so we're missing a lot of shots. And the game ends... And we're still tied. So in basketball, what happens, right? In basketball, you don't do shootouts or anything like that. In basketball, you go into overtime. Now, again, this wasn't the NBA. We were the last game of the evening. And we had these referees who were hired just for, I don't know, till 10 o'clock. But it was 9.57, and we were in overtime. We were tied. So we wanted to play to see who would actually win the game. So the refs graciously said, okay, fine, we'll stick around a little longer. They're not getting paid for this. So they stayed, and they added five more minutes to the clock. Now, overtime was hard fought, and with the clock ticking down, 10, 9, 8, toward the end of the five minutes, we were tied again, okay? And they had the ball, and we were playing defense with as much effort as we could muster, 110%, 7, 6, 5. We were trying to steal the ball. I was so tired. When the clock got down to the single digits, though, I think we all had this realization that we weren't going to get the ball back. We're not going to have a chance to score. We just need to stop them so that we can go into double overtime and try to win in double overtime. So we're playing as hard defense as we can. The clock is sticking down, four, three, and they shoot to try to win a buzzer beater, and they miss. Two, one, zero, and the buzzer goes off. And then our friend Dan, he's the pastor of the other church. He went to Masters with us, so we know him. He gets the rebound, the buzzer already went off, and he just shoots it real quick, and it goes in. Clearly after the clock was over, and the refs looked at the basket, they looked at the clock, and then they said it was over. They said, count it, we got to go home, it's over. And we were really, uh, we felt it was unjust, we'll just put it that way. We lost. And contrary to what we had anticipated, there was and would be no time left to make it up. Now, Again, you know, we, we thought it was unjust. We argued our point. They didn't have time either. They cheated. Dan is a bad pastor. But the truth is, we had time in the game, and we didn't win. And we were actually given, we were gifted five more minutes to try to win the game, and we still couldn't get the job done. We just didn't take advantage. And the crazy part about it was, even though we kind of knew this, we still thought as the clock was ticking down and the buzzer sounded that we would have more time and we were wrong. And it's a bit of a silly example, um, a little too silly maybe for our text today, but this idea of running out of time is prevalent and we often don't realize it until it's too late. In fact, on a more serious note to kind of ease us into the tone of our text, I heard a man just this week sharing about how he had lost his wife to cancer earlier this month. So this is very recent. And she had been undergoing treatment for five years, something like that. She had gone uh, under numerous rounds of chemo, radiation, surgeries. And it had kind of been kept at bay for a while. Um, But just a few months ago, they realized that the cancer wasn't stopping. The spreading kept happening. So they went to the doctor uh, end of June, I think. um, And he said, you know, I think you probably got to start getting ready for, you know, things to end pretty soon. They went in the beginning, uh, end of June, excuse me, they went at the beginning of the week, and, and the doctor said, I think we need to put her on hospice care. It was a Monday. 
So they were like, okay, wow, this is pretty serious, but we kind of expected it. It's been a long five years. So on Tuesday, they contacted the hospice company. They brought the people, oh, you know, they brought the bed into the house and everything on Tuesday. And the husband who was sharing was saying, okay, I knew that it was kind of almost over, but I thought we'd have more time. We'd say goodbye. She'd be comfortable at home. We'd have some relatives over. By Thursday, she was sedated, and by Saturday, she was gone. He said, I thought that we would have more time, and he was wrong. Now, here's a question for you guys today. What are you putting off in your life? What are you putting off because you think somewhere deep down inside or in the back of your mind that you'll just have more time to do it later? Is there someone you've been meaning to call or connect with or ask for forgiveness from? Are there things you know you should do with your kids or with your parents? But it's always later. It's always tomorrow. It's always next week. It's always after this busy season at work. Then I will do it. And what about getting your spiritual life together? How often have we said, okay, you know what? I'm going to start getting serious about prayer tomorrow morning. I'm going to start reading my Bible next week after this deadline at work. I'm going to start serving. I'm going to get plugged in with people. How many times have we been convicted on Sunday, say we'll change starting Monday, but by Sunday night, it's already a memory in the rearview mirror as we think about all these other pressing things that we have to do. There's always something that seems more pressing. We always feel like we'll have more time. We could do it tomorrow and do it the next day. This parable is a warning about that kind of thinking. Now, Uh, I haven't preached any of the parables yet. You've heard Eric and Ben preach on them, and they've explained what parables are. Parables are not straightforward, intentionally not. They're very simple stories, but they're not straightforward. The word parable comes from the Greek word parabolos, which means to throw alongside. That's what it literally means. It's an analogy. It's a comparison to help us to understand something more deeply, to look at things from a different angle. Parables, Jesus used parables because parables both reveal and they conceal. Okay, they're designed to reveal and open up truth to us in a fresh way, in a deeper way, in a more insightful way. And yet at the same time, because they are not always straightforward, they do conceal the truth from many people. Jesus told parables to so many in the crowds, and yet very few actually took to heart what he said. Very few even understood what he taught. Jesus wasn't always about making things super easy or accessible. In fact, once in John 6, he even preached a message so difficult that many of his own disciples stopped following him afterwards. But Jesus always always taught the truth. So all this to say, a lot of us here might struggle to receive what Jesus has in this parable for us this afternoon. But if you have ears to hear, if you have eyes to see, there's something in here that might just change the course of your life starting now. And I pray that you would be different after today, after this passage, than you were when you came in. Because the clock is ticking. So let's get into it. We'll look at this text in three parts. First, the tragedies, then the tree, then the time. Okay? First, the tragedies. This is the context. And this is about the urgency of repentance. That's what Jesus is getting at. That's the occasion for why he tells the parable in the first place. Look at verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Okay, so this chapter begins kind of in the middle of something with breaking news about a tragedy. Pilate, the Roman governor, he had some Galileans, northern Israelites, right, killed while they were at the temple in Jerusalem. 
He had literally sent Roman soldiers to execute these guys while they were at the altar. See, kind of one of the things that we don't always picture because it's not, it's kind of foreign to us, the sacrificial system and how religion worked in Israel, was that when you offered sacrifices, you brought an animal or you bought one there and you actually participated in killing the animal. It was a very gruesome kind of visceral way to remember that the wages of sin is death. That your sins actually require something to die or someone to die, some blood to be shed. So you would participate in that. It was very kind of bloody and it was gory. It was in your face. And yet at the same time, it was sacred. So Pilate had violated that sacred space. And it's the details that really make this story stick. They tell Jesus that the blood of these Galileans had actually mixed with the blood of the sacrifices. So again, it's a bloody affair. You're participating in the shedding of blood of these animals. And these Roman soldiers, they bust through the door, apparently, and they kill these guys in cold blood with swords. And their blood runs together with the blood of the oxen or the goats or whatever was being sacrificed. You could think of it today as if we just heard that some corrupt government or something had burst into an underground church and just shot up the place, killed everybody, And then the picture that was going viral that everyone is showing is of the blood filling the communion cups, the blood of the worshipers. It's something that is gruesome. It's something that bothers you. It's profane. This kind of thing that you might think, it's the kind of thing that you might think would change the trajectory of everything Jesus is doing in chapter 13, of his day, even of the focus of his ministry. Because remember, Jesus was from Galilee. He was born, right, in Bethlehem. But he grew up in Nazareth, which was in Galilee. That's where he lived. He played in those hills as a young boy with his friends and with his brothers. And the few times we ever see Jesus angry in the scriptures, it has to do with the temple. He saw the commercialization. Do you remember this? He goes into the temple and people are buying and they're selling and they're ripping people off at the money tables. And Jesus is so bothered by this. Right? He makes a whip out of cords and he flips tables and he drives people out. Usually Jesus is very cool. You know, like he's cool as a cucumber. But something about this really just viscerally bothers him. This was his father's house. It was supposed to be a place for prayer and sacrifice. It was a sacred space. So you put these two things together, people from his hometown, maybe people that he knew were killed at the temple. Now, understand Jesus has been teaching These men interject with this breaking news, the kind of news that couldn't be more personal to him, and yet Jesus doesn't respond at all in the way that we might expect, knowing what we know about Jesus, knowing what we know about the situation. He doesn't respond with a moment of silence, with mourning. He doesn't respond with anger. He doesn't talk about what he would have done if he was there, how he would have stopped it. He doesn't use this as an opportunity to talk about the political situation of Roman-occupied Israel. He doesn't reply with any take on the situation. Rather, his response is so different than how we respond to most tragedies today. He simply asked a question, verse 2, and he answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? What kind of question is this? I mean, think about it. You know, Jesus often responds in a way that is totally different than what we would expect. What kind of question? Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Instead of getting emotional or political, Jesus asked a theological question that requires a simple yes or no answer. 
He asked the crowds in the middle of his teaching, in light of this breaking news, do you think that because they died, they were worse sinners than all the people who didn't die? Why would he ask this? Well, turn with me to John 9. Keep your place here, but go to John 9. It's just one book after this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 9. Super powerful story. John chapter 9. We're going to look at verse 1. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but I want you to see this from the text. John 9. This story is only found in the book of John. Okay, John chapter 9. As he passed by, this is Jesus, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. He saw a man blind from birth. They're just walking around. They see a guy who was blind since he was, burnt, uh, since he was born. Now look at the first thought Jesus' disciples have in verse 2. And his disciples, these 12 guys, they asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now what kind of question is this? Where's the pity? Where's the compassion? Or why not just ignore him? Why would you ask when the guy's just sitting right here blind? Why would you ask a question like this? But you have to understand the mindset. Okay, the Jewish people, they were religious. They actually believed in the one true God who made heaven and earth. To them, there was no such thing as a quote-unquote senseless act of violence. They didn't believe in a random accident. Everything had meaning. Everything was part of God's plan. And I think that's to their credit, okay? We would do well to think more like that, to think about God in every situation. Now, they also believed that God was just. They believed that people got what they deserved. So when things like this happened, what did they do? These are the disciples. What did they do? They asked, well, what did he do? They figured that somehow or some way this guy to be punished like this, to be born without sight, some sin must have occurred. Rabbi, was it him or was it his parents? Now, if you're thinking like a good rabbi, you say, obviously, it was his parents. How could he be born blind? He couldn't sin in the womb, right? So it's obviously his parents. But Jesus doesn't say that. Verse 3, Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, Okay, was he a sinner? Yes, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3, this means his parents were sinners too. Jesus is not making a statement about depravity, saying that there are some sinless people out there. But what he's saying is, it's not because of his sins or his parents' sins that he was born blind. There isn't a one-to-one correlation. The reason the man was born blind actually was something that no one would have been able to guess for much of this guy's life. Erroneously, like Job's friends, people would have thought, oh, it must be his parents or his grandparents or something happened. It's the sins of Israel. But really, the reason Jesus reveals here in John 9 is that the works of God might be displayed in him. He was born blind so that the Christ, one random day, could walk by him. His disciples would ask a question about it, and he would heal that man for the glory of God. Now, back to Luke 13. Luke 13. This is the way that people thought. They just thought that if something really bad happens to you, there must be a reason. I mean, there is a God. He is in control. There has to be a reason. Jesus knows how the crowd thinks. They're thinking the same way his disciples were thinking in John 9. These Galileans, they must have deserved it. And by thinking that way, by pinpointing that kind of thought process in their minds and in their hearts, Jesus understands that that's kind of how they separate themselves from the tragedy. Right? 
do you think that they were worse sinners than everyone else? I mean, if you press them a little bit, I think they would have said, probably. They must have done something. Maybe they provoked Pilate. I don't know what they did. Maybe there was some secret sin in their life. But how could something so bad happen to these people? Why would God remove his protection from them? Why would he allow them to suffer in this way? Look, I, I'm sure that they were angry at Pilate, that this made them made their blood boil a little bit about Roman occupation. I'm sure that they were sad, of course, because these were their countrymen. But Jesus knows that deep down inside of their hearts, what's really the issue and what he wants to talk about, they don't believe that it could have been them or rather that it should have been them. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Sound of Music. For some reason, I'm kind of on a Sound of Music kick. You might have been in our class last week. Um, but do you remember the part where Maria and Captain Von Trapp confess their love for each other? Do you remember this? Uh, they sing a song about it, as they do uh, in The Sound of Music. And I'm not going to sing it. Um... Okay, I will. I'll give it a shot. No, I'm just kidding. No, I'm not going to sing it. Uh, the lyrics go like this, though. For here you are, standing here loving me, whether or not you should. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something, what? Something good. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. The idea is, wow, this is so great, right? Our love is so unexpected and beautiful. And I didn't think I would ever have something like this. I didn't think I deserved it. But I guess I do. (laughs) That's kind of what the song is about. Because nothing comes from nothing. Right? Good things don't happen out of nowhere. Bad things don't come from nothing. If I get good, I must have done good somewhere, even if I didn't realize it. And if something bad happens to me, well, I got to go back and comb over my history to see what way I messed up to deserve it. Either you're getting rewarded for your behavior or you're getting punished. This is how people tend to think from the disciples in John 9 to Maria. Some people just deserve worse. Some deserve better as the Jewish people reason. When tragedy happens, thank your lucky stars, or rather thank yourself that you weren't bad enough to deserve such a fate. I don't know exactly what they thought Jesus was going to say. It's not exactly one of those things that even seems appropriate in light of the situation. Yet Jesus, as he always does, he gets to the heart of the matter. So the question is for us, as we start this off, have you ever thought this way? Is there a little bit of this thinking somewhere deep down in your heart or in the back of your mind? I mean, maybe in little ways. Maybe you don't think you're, uh, maybe you don't say, I'm just such a good person. That's why I have such a great life. But do you maybe think sometimes when something goes bad, maybe there's something in my past that I did that I need to, to fix or confess? Maybe you had kind of a rough kind of passed before Christ. And every time something kind of goes hard in your life, you think, man, I think God's just punishing me for this. Maybe you judge how you feel as a Christian day by day on your performance. And even though you know that salvation is by grace through faith, maybe you, you don't pray for a couple of weeks. You don't read the Bible for a couple of weeks. And instead of just getting back on the horse, you feel kind of guilty about it. You feel like, well, I've been gone from God for so long, he's probably going to be like, well, 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 look who it is when I show up again. So you feel even worse about it, and then you don't pray even more. You kind of spiral. It's a death spiral further and further away from God, all because you're looking at your own performance. It's very easy to think and act and live as if God keeps a ledger, and if you drop below a certain point, you're somehow in the doghouse. 
But look at verse 3. Jesus asks the question. He doesn't invite a response. He just says something. He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. No, they weren't worse. They weren't worse. But unless you repent, he brings it to them. You will all perish. The truth is, every single person deserves what happened to those Galileans. That's a pretty heavy thing to hear. That's a pretty harsh thing to say. And yet the reason Jesus is saying it is because he wants them to know that there is one way to get out of this fate. It's to repent. See, the question we shouldn't be asking isn't, what bad things did those people do to deserve their punishment? The question we should be asking is, why am I still alive knowing that I'm just as bad as anyone else? Keep reading verse 4. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that those or the, uh, that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Jesus brings up another disaster they would have all been aware of. Siloam was in Jerusalem. There was a pool there. People would bathe in it to be healed. In fact, fun fact, John 9, that blind man actually was, uh, he, Jesus told him to bathe in the pool of Siloam to be healed. So it was right around there. Apparently, a tower fell on, uh, on 18 unlucky souls. But again, remember the Jewish people did not believe in luck or chance. They would have clearly seen this as judgment from God. And I think this is why he brings up a second example. Because in the first example, you might say, well, maybe they antagonized Pilate. Maybe it was just Pilate's depravity or sin. But in the second example, obviously, no human being was involved. It was just an accident that happened. And they viewed that as judgment. God must have made it happen, or he could have stopped it from happening. And he asked them the same question. Okay, remember that tower? Were those people worse that God took them early? Verse 5, same answer. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The second example makes it crystal clear what Jesus is getting at with these people. These people who believe in a God who is sovereign over everything, a God who is just, who upholds right and wrong. What he's saying is, look, you're all under judgment. It is a little messed up to use the death of those people as a lesson. At least we could feel that way very easily. The only reason Jesus would say something so seemingly harsh is because he knows the danger that these people are in even now and they just don't realize it. They're on a bus that's about to head off a cliff. Unless you turn around, unless you repent, you will perish. You're all under judgment. And this means we will all die, but they knew that. They knew that they were mortal. They knew that every single human being dies. But as Hebrews 9.27 says, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. The guilty are sentenced to a fate in Gehenna, right, in hell, separated from the presence of God and his goodness forever. The Bible calls this the second death. See, Jesus brings up a second example. He brings up a tower that falls on people. He knows that they were thinking it must have been some kind of divine punishment or something like that. He's saying, look, divine punishment is actually coming for every single person. Whether a tower falls on you one random day or you die peacefully in your sleep at 115 years old. 
So yeah, these incidents in Luke 13 are extreme. They aren't peaceful deaths. They would have been seen as divinely ordained. But Jesus says, look, the truth is you're all headed to the same divine judgment unless you repent. And this leads to the second point. Because the truth is, if you're a Christian here today and you've been around for a while, I know not everyone is, I know not everyone has, but if you have been, I know that's the vast majority of you. This is not controversial, what I'm saying. It's hard to hear, maybe. It, it is a little harsh, but it's not controversial to say that we're all sinners, to say that uh, we're not better than anyone else, that we don't deserve a better faith. That's not controversial. Even to say you need to repent, lest you be judged. I think even that, you understand, the beginning of Mark starts that way. Repent and believe in the gospel. But there's something more Jesus wants to get at here. He wants to drive the nail in even further because he knows that we don't get it a lot of the time. A lot of the time. So he tells a parable about a tree. Second point, the tree. And this is about what repentance actually looks like. Jesus wants us to take our lives seriously. Repent or perish. Those are the choices. But he knows a lot of people still think and still say, yeah, maybe later. Look at verse 6. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Okay, the details of the story are easy to picture. A man owns a vineyard, okay, a common thing in Israel. He plants a tree. We all know what that is. It's not hard to understand. After three years, he sees it still hasn't borne any fruit, so he figures this tree is not going to bear fruit. There's something wrong with the tree. Let's cut it down. Let's cut our losses. Let's plant a new tree, whatever. Okay, this tree is not helping us at all. Now, Jesus told this parable in the context of calling everyone in the crowds to repent or perish. So what's the connection between this parable about a tree that's not bearing fruit and repentance? Well, turn back to Luke 3. We're not preaching through Luke, so you might not even realize this is in here. But this teaching comes on the heels of something that happened early on in Jesus' ministry. In fact, even before Jesus began his ministry in earnest. Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. We can pick up in verse 2. During the high priesthood of Annas and uh, Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah. In the wilderness. Now, John the son of Zechariah, in case you didn't know, that's John the Baptist. He's Jesus' relative. He's the one who prepared the way for Jesus. So the word of God comes to John, verse 3, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now skip down to verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, these are the people who actually want to hear him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's what John the Baptist was telling people who actually wanted to be baptized. Do you understand? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John is using the same metaphor. 
See, at this point, John was the greatest thing that Israel had seen in a long time. Okay, for 400 years, God had sent no prophet. Heaven was basically silent. There was radio silence from God. But then the word, of the, the word of the Lord comes to John the Baptist, and he preaches in this powerful way that people have never heard in their lifetime. And his message was repent. Repent. You got to turn around. That's what the word literally means. Do a 180. Now, he was magnetic. People were drawn to him. Even though his message was harsh, people wanted to hear him even more. It seemed like revival was about to break out. So many people were raising their hands. They were walking down the aisles. People were crying. Tears were shed. So many wanted to be baptized. He was so undeniable that Matthew 3 actually tells us that both the Sadducees and the Pharisees were going to hear him. Okay, they were diametrically opposed. It's like if the Republicans and the Democrats lined up around the same man and same message somehow. And that's probably the Antichrist. And yet John wasn't satisfied with this. John was no antichrist. John wasn't trying to get the crowds. He didn't care about numbers. He didn't care about the appearance of revival at all. What did he care about? One thing, real repentance. And how do you know what real repentance is? Fruit. It's simple. Now, what does he mean by fruit? Verse 10. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered him, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. He's basically saying you got to change your lives. It's not that hard, or rather it's not that complicated. Be selfless, be honest, be content. Do a 180 from whatever way you're going right now. Now, again, repentance literally means turning around. Theologically, it's a turn from sin to God, going down a bad path and turning around and coming to Christ. Repentance has many aspects to it. Usually we think about saying sorry, right? Apologizing, asking for forgiveness. Maybe we think about feeling bad really having this feeling of contrition and conviction in our hearts that what we did was wrong. But what John points out is what repentance needs to be true repentance is not just those things. Those things are fine, but what it needs is fruit. You got to do something different. In fact, someone once said repentance has three aspects and must have all three, confession, contrition, and then change. Confession is the intellectual part of it, right? Knowing that you did something wrong, saying, sorry, I messed up. Contrition is feeling bad about it, having that sorrow over your sin. The third aspect is change. It's volitional. The willful aspect. We actually choose to live differently in light of what happened. You know, I remember going to these church retreats when I was younger, Um, I grew up in this Baptist church, and uh, we would go to these youth retreats, and it was kind of like a revival. It's kind of, you know, it's just the Baptist way. I don't know if you know what that that means exactly, Um, but there would always be kind of like an altar call at the end. And if you don't know what that is, basically we would hear some sermons over the week. We would pray. We would meet in like these cabin small groups, and we would talk about life. And 
and we would be challenged by the pastor, and we would sing worship songs. And at the very end of this kind of experience, and the experience is good, but at the end of this experience, the worship leader maybe or the pastor would come up and call people to make a decision to believe in Jesus or to give their life to Christ. And it's called an altar call because they would call you up to the front if that's what you want to do. Or something. They would do different things. Sometimes, uh, I remember in California, we go up into the mountains, and then they would have us like throw a pine cone in the fire or something. Like, throwing away my old life, which is a pine cone, right? And I got a new life now. Um, but I remember they would always do this. And we would feel convicted a lot because, you know, a lot of us, we hadn't really been living for God at all. We're just youth who live for ourselves. Um, but we go to these retreats, and then they would, you know, tell us about how we need to live for Christ and how life is short, all these things. We're sinners and we need to be saved and all these things. And we would believe it uh, to a certain extent. We'd agree with it at least. And we would feel bad. And they'd say, okay, well, if you're not a Christian, right, if you feel like you want to be, come walk down the aisle right now. We're going to play some songs on like the harpsichord or whatever. And we want you to come down and show that you're changing. Okay, by walking down the aisle or standing up or whatever it is. And I don't know how many times I became a Christian. Probably like a dozen at least. Because um, I was never totally sure. I was like, I, I think maybe I should just walk down the aisle again just in case. For people like me, they would also, they kind of added in this thing. Do you want to rededicate your life to Christ? You know, you, you know you're a Christian or you said you're a Christian, but now you're kind of feeling like I, I've been far. I've been, you've been struggling with sin. You haven't been that serious. If you want to rededicate your life to Christ, walk down the aisle or stand up or raise your hand. And again, I don't know how many times I stood up to rededicate my life. Now, okay, don't get me wrong. That's not all bad. I think it's good to be challenged to repent and to believe. I think it's good, too, that, that they would preach the gospel like this every single time I went. But it's definitely incomplete. John the Baptist knew this why he called people out, even though they were, quote-unquote, walking down the aisle to come to him to be baptized. Jesus for sure knew this. This is why he brings up this parable. If you don't have fruit, it's not real repentance. Look, it's not that hard to feel bad sometimes. In fact, we know this. Music can emotionally manipulate people. I think churches figured this out years ago. It's so easy to get people to cry or to get into an emotional state. And that's not totally wrong. Music is emotional, but emotion, it's not enough. Sorrow is not enough. Crying, even over your sin, Paul says there is a difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. And you know what the difference is? Godly sorrow leads to change and repentance. So standing up, walking down an aisle, that's fine, but if you go home and you're the exact same person, that's not repentance. The proof is in the pudding. Or to make it more biblical, a tree will always be known by its fruit. So back to Luke 13, Jesus said, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. He came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Jesus is telling everyone that they are the barren fig trees. And they better repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance, or else they're going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, understand, he was talking to the people of God. He was talking to people who wanted to hear him. He wasn't talking about the Samaritans or the pagans or the Romans, not primarily. 
The examples referenced were Galileans, people from Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, Israel was referred to as a vineyard and as a fig tree. This is talking to people who you think would already know this kind of stuff. That's exactly what's happening in this parable. The guy shows up looking at the tree, seeking fruit. Do you see that? Because why wouldn't they have fruit? They have the law. They have the word of God. They know who the one true God of heaven and earth is. They are very serious about religion. He comes seeking fruit because, of course, this tree would have fruit. Everything it needs to thrive, it has, and yet there is none. So what's the application? It's simple. Do you have fruit? Do you have fruit? Ask yourself the question, do you have fruit? Are you bearing fruit in keeping with your profession of repentance? If not, you will perish. That's the lesson of this parable, speaking to the people of God. And we're not Israel. There was a specific lesson to Israel, and and there was a time period where the Messiah was coming to them, and they still rejected him by and large. But even now, even as the church, there are many people who have raised their hand, walked down an aisle, who have made a profession of faith, and yet the question, the real question is, is there fruit? There's one thing that is endemic in the American church today. It's mere talk. Okay, mere talk. You know what I mean by that? We, we, we talk about what we're going to do. We, we talk about it with accountability partners. We talk about it with our community group. We talk about it with the pastor. We go to counseling and therapy. We get a discipler to meet with us, and we talk about how we need to change, how things need to change, how I need to grow. I really got to stop doing this. I really got to start doing that. And then we go home and don't do it. In fact, I think there's a connection between talking sometimes and not doing it. Because when we share about it, when we share about how convicted we are, how much we need to change, how, how like I've been feeling so bad about this, we kind of let it off our chest and we feel better. We don't feel that conviction anymore. It's cathartic. I was just talking to Eric about this, and I'm not calling anyone out here. In fact, yesterday, my point was, um, there's an exception that proved the rule. I saw some of you yesterday. And you saw me too. I wasn't spying on you or like hiding or anything. But I saw some of you guys from church and we were talking and then I said, uh, I'll see you tomorrow. And they said, see you tomorrow. And, uh, and they're here today. So praise God. Uh, but Eric and I were joking because so many times for some reason, when we see people on Saturday and they say, see you tomorrow, like 80% of the time, they don't come to church the next day. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just bad luck. We don't believe in luck. Maybe it's just a coincidence in the sovereignty of God. But I think there is something connected to just saying it and feeling like you did something. Saying it is not doing something. You see what I'm saying? Now, if you got sick and didn't come, or even if you were tired, we're not legalists here, okay, it's okay. But there is a problem with mere talk in the church where we talk a lot. Talk a lot about our faith, what we would do, what we're going to do. We got to do like when they talk to John the Baptist, when he's calling them out, he's saying, you brood of vipers, they say, what should we do? And he gives them very clear instructions. Do these things. So look, I'm not saying talk is bad. I'm not saying crying is bad or feeling sorrow. If I see you on Saturday, you could say, see me tomorrow. And if you don't come, it's okay. I won't judge you. I'm not saying any of that is bad in of itself. But if that's all there is, then it's exactly like a fig tree that has all these leaves and looks good, but has no 
fruit. A lot of people feel bad about their sin. A lot of people know their lives aren't where they should be. A lot of people intellectually and emotionally even try to bring their problems to church or to Christ. And yet, so many fig trees have no fruit. So look at the fruit of your life. I'm serious. And I preach to myself. I do. Are you a selfless person now because you turned away from your old selfless, uh, selfish ways? Don't just say, I think so. I feel more selfless. What have you actually done that is selfless? Show me the fruit. One of my really good friends before he was a Christian, um, I met him. I knew him and he was, he might listen to this. And if he does, I'm sorry. Um, but he was kind of a selfish guy. He was the kind of guy where there were, there were two cookies left. He would just eat both, right? And I'd be like, okay, well, thanks. Um, but after he became a Christian, one of the crazy things that I really noticed, it almost was annoying, was how he did a complete 180 from that. I'm like, just eat one of the cookies. We'll split it. But he insists that I have both. And I remember when I was talking to his fiance when he got married later, I was like, what do you like most about this guy? And she's like, you know, he's just a really like thoughtful intentional, selfless person. And I'm like, man, praise God. Like God really does change people. It doesn't have to be something dramatic. Do you see what I'm saying? It doesn't have to be like, I used to be a murderer and now I'm a doctor. It just has to be real. I think that's what we miss. We want to make these dramatic changes. Okay, I didn't read the Bible at all for the past year, so now I'm going to read the whole thing tomorrow. It just has to be real. It has to be real. Is there fruit? Are you kinder? Not just do I feel nicer. Do you actually respond more kindly to people when they wrong you or to your kids when they're being annoying? Are you someone who is more humble? Not just do I think I'm more humble. Do you boast about yourself less? Do you think about other people more? Do you listen better with intention, not just waiting for your turn to talk? Are you a servant? Not just do I feel sometimes like I want to help people. Do you actually serve even when you don't necessarily have the time when it's inconvenient? Do you make sacrifices for other people? Do you prioritize God? Do you make an effort to fellowship with the saints? Do you sing even if your voice isn't the best? Do you ask for forgiveness when you mess up? Again, it doesn't have to be dramatic. It just has to be real. And I feel like the road to fruitlessness for so many people is paved with a lot of talk and a lot of good intentions, but still no fruit. So take an honest look at your life. What do you do? What do you actually do that's different than what you used to do? Third point. We'll move quick. The time. It's ironic, the time. Luke is a book that is concerned with time. It's one thing that makes Luke stand out from all the other gospel accounts. And if you study Luke, you know this, that basically in the middle of Luke, it's one long journey to Jerusalem. Early on in the book, Jesus decides, he sets his face toward Jerusalem. And not just the city, okay, like he's traveling there, but to what Jerusalem represents, which is where he's going to be tried and killed and crucified for the sins of the world. So he decides early on, and really everything after he decides, is on that road to Jerusalem. Every step takes him closer to the cross. So there's this kind of ticking time bomb that is built into the narrative of Luke. Luke cares about time. And then in Luke chapter 12, right before this, where Jesus was teaching before he was interrupted, he was talking about urgency. He said, the time is short. You don't have a lot of time. Get right with God now. Settle your accounts The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. One day you're minding your own business, and then a tower will fall on you. 
One day you're offering sacrifices and Roman soldiers burst in. Or one day you get in a car accident. One day you get diagnosed with cancer. These things happen. Life is short. So get right with God. And yet, look at verse 8. After everything Jesus said, right, he, he uses this tragedy to talk about how you need to repent or you're going to perish. It sounds a little callous. Even look at verse 8. The parable isn't done. They don't cut down the tree. Rather, he, the vine dresser, answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The vine dresser asks for more time. He says that he will personally take care of the tree. He will dig and fertilize and give it even more of what it needs to bear fruit. And if it does, great. If not, then you can cut it down. What's going on here? Jesus is talking about himself. He's talking about himself. See, understand the man who owns the field in this parable is God. Okay, do you understand that? We understand that God owns everything. He owns the vineyard, but in real life, he owns everything. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. We were made for him. We belong to him. Just as a guy who plants a tree can do with the tree what he wants, God has made all of us. And yet from the garden till now, humanity has sinned against him. We were made to bear fruit for his glory, and yet we rebelled against him. And he has every right to do with us as he pleases. And yet, and yet, though we are fruitless by nature, though we don't bear fruit like we were created and planted to do, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him might not what? Perish. Might not perish. See, the way the story could have gone, and God will be absolutely just, is he could have created humanity. He could have planted a tree in a garden, so to speak, and when the tree didn't bear fruit, he could have cut it down. When Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden, God could have said, don't say I didn't warn you. I said in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And they did spiritually die, and he could have just struck them down right there. That could have been the end of the Bible. But instead, God sent his son so that if we turn to him, we might not perish. Do you see that? Commentators have pointed out that the fig tree in the story has been fruitless for three years. How long was Jesus's ministry? It was three years. Three years where he's preaching and doing miracles and teaching and helping people. Three years for people to bear fruit. They still haven't gotten it yet, by and large. And yet, what does Jesus say? He doesn't say, well, okay, you guys are kind of missing your chance. In the parable, there is even more time. See, Jesus is the true vine dresser of this parable, sent so that whoever believes in him might not perish. Jesus came so that we could have a second chance, so that we could have the time to repent. We don't know how much time that is. In the parable, it's another season, another year. All we know is if we're alive right now, and if you're hearing this right now, if you have ears to hear, in the sovereignty of God, he brought you here today to hear Luke 13, to read this text. You have this opportunity. God has gifted you this opportunity to repent and live. Now, a quick word of application, and then we'll close. One, if you're not a Christian, the application is very clear. 
All of us are going to die. And as Hebrews 9 says, we will face judgment. We'll have to answer for our lives. And if you want assurance, if you want to be saved, if you want to know that you can go to heaven instead of hell when you die, you got to turn to Christ. And this has to be in your heart. I'm not going to have you walk down an aisle or anything like that. It's about coming to Christ, setting, us, setting aside the old person you used to be so that you could be made new in him. Two, if you are a Christian, for some of you guys, you got to examine your life. We all need to do it. Every Christian needs to examine to see if we're in the faith. But for some of us, you really just need to reckon with the reality of your fruit or fruitlessness. It's not about your intentions, not about what you say. It's about what your life is actually like. Now, again, your life doesn't save you, but your life will show you where you're really at. Faith without works is dead. So it is all about faith, but look at your life. What do you actually do? The worst fate to think, uh, the worst fate you can think of, I think, as a Christian is you show up and you think you're a Christian your whole life. You show up at the judgment and you say, what's up, God? And he says, depart from me. I don't even know who you are. Examine yourself. And then for some of us, you're a Christian, right? I think there is fruit. You don't have to, you don't have to, you know, beat yourself up all the time. If you are trying to live for God, that's good. But what you got to remember is the entire Christian life, as Luther said, is repentance. As we grow in our faith, we will also see areas in which we need to grow more. There will always be more opportunities to do good work. God saved us and he prepared good works for us to do. So it's going to be a life of repentance, a life of turning to Christ, a life of turning away from sin. So whatever you're struggling with, however you've been strained, whatever glaring sins there are in your life, the application is turn to Christ before it's too late. Don't put it off. Deal with that sin. Talk to that person. Start changing your habits today. Don't wait till tomorrow. We'll close with two examples. Turn with me to Mark 15. Mark 15, quickly now. I was only able to hit up three of the Gospels today, but Mark 15, right before Luke, uh, Mark only has 16 chapters, so it's toward the end. Look at verse 25. Mark 15, 25. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. Verse 26. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right hand and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So everyone is piling on Jesus right here. Everyone is mocking him from the religious leaders to the uh, pass- those passing by to even those criminals who are crucified next to him. And yet, if you turn to Luke 23, in fact, for the sake of time, I'll just read it. As Jesus was dying on that cross, suffocating on his own blood, bearing the weight of the sin of the world, the sky turned dark. When a centurion saw what was taking place, when he saw how Jesus died in a way no one had ever died, he said, truly this man is the son of God. That's the context of Luke 23. And then in verse 39, it says, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? 
save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Look, for these men, it was literally the final hour. The clocks of their lives were ticking down. The sand of the hourglass was almost out. And while they all mocked, that's what Mark 15 says, this one criminal, this one thief, somewhere, somehow, by watching what was happening with Jesus, turned away from his mocking. He repented, you could say. He turned from his mocking and he asked Jesus simply to remember him. This is faith. And then verse 43, and he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Buzzer beater. As he took his final breaths, this thief bore the tiniest bud of fruit in keeping with his repentance, humility about who he was, the fear of God, and faith in the crucified Savior. It was only a tiny bit of fruit, but it was real and it was enough. Take advantage of the time you have. You don't know how much there is, but take advantage. And I said two examples briefly. A preacher I know of shared once about his worst experience preaching. He was up here, I guess, uh, up on stage or whatever, and he was behind the pulpit, and he was sharing what he felt was the most important thing in the world, the gospel and the word of God. He's preaching, and he said that there was a young girl there that he had not really seen before. And for some reason, she, she was sitting toward the front, and she was like kind of mocking what he was saying, kind of making fun of him the whole time. So it was kind of annoying him. So finally, like halfway through the sermon, he said, hey, look, I can see you. You know, like he stopped, like cut it out. And she, you know, she was a little embarrassed for a second, but then she just kept doing it the entire time. And he's preaching about eternity, eternal life, God, the most serious things. And he was sharing this, sharing this story, and he said she treated it like a joke. But the crazy thing was, and I kid you not, this girl, that girl was killed in a car crash less than 24 hours after that. And he said that just cemented in his mind just how important and how urgent these things are and how lightly we can take it. God is gracious and that he's given us this time we have. If we were given what we deserve, none of us would even be here. And yet we are here. God has poured out grace upon grace to us. And there is still more grace as you go out from this place. As you think about all the things in your life that need to change. And the time that you have to change. So live with a little more urgency, I would say. Take the stewardship of your life more seriously and ask yourself these questions. What am I going to do with this time that I have? What am I going to show for what I've been given? What do I need to do today before it's too late? Now I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a few minutes to pray on your own. So if you could bow your heads, close your eyes. I think it's appropriate that you turn to Christ individually, that we all do. If there's something that is going on in your life that you need to repent of, now is the time to start that process. <clears throat> if you've been far from God, just in your personal life, now is the time to come to him in prayer, to kneel before him. If you need help, now is the time to go to God and ask him for help. And for all of us, it's time to thank him for this time that we have and the grace that he's given us, the chance that he's given us to repent that we might not perish. So just a couple minutes once you pray.